0: Hello and welcome to Series 3, Episode 19 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello. I hope that you're having a good week. I'm having a really good week. I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, I just want to let you know that this episode will be the final episode of this series. But don't worry, we're not going anywhere. We're going to continue to make the series. It will come back, I think, in around September. Um, So I'm really looking forward to uh, getting some more interviews over the summer. I'm reaching out to lots of people now and I'll be back... With lots more interesting conversations. And as ever, if you want to get in touch with me, please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I've had a brilliant week because, as many of you know, those of you certainly know who've been listening since series one, uh, back in the first lockdown in uh, May of 2020, Alice and I had to postpone our wedding. And we were umming and ahhing about what to do, and we were deciding whether we wanted to do a big, flashy wedding like the one that we had planned. And then we just realized what we really wanted was to be married to each other. So earlier this week, or last week now when you're listening to this, or it could be who knows when you're listening to this. But for me, just four days ago, uh, Alice and I went to a local registry office and tied the knot uh, with just a couple of friends and then had some champagne and then went out for a very fancy dinner. And it was wonderful. So um, that's how my week's been. I always let you know what I've been up to. And this week... I've become a married woman i've got i've got a wife and i am just so happy just so happy and it feels like this is the kind of podcast where i want to share that news because i feel like a younger version of me would have really liked to know that uh, that i had a happy ever after so uh, maybe you want to hear that as well okay Let's get on to um, a couple of emails. As always, I love to share these emails. And then I have a marvelous interview with Michael Cashman, who I fell very much in love with, as you will hear over the course of our conversation. What a wonderful, inspiring man. And I highly recommend his book. But before we get to that just brilliant chat, uh, let's share a couple of emails. Hi, Susie. I wanted to say how much I enjoy listening each week to you and the stories you share with us. I just listened to the latest episode and it really struck a chord with me. Now I feel a little guilty writing this, as I know you have such amazing listeners and they all deserve to have their stories heard by you, but I'm an ally. You're totally welcome to write in. I love that you have. I'm also going to be 40 soon and I've been single for most of my life. I have some amazing friends and family, some of whom over the years have asked if I'm gay. I knew that I wasn't, not out of any sort of denial. It's like some of your guests say, I just always knew my identity. I have such lovely people around me. I feel lucky knowing they would all support me no matter what. That said, I was bullied a lot as a kid and it left me feeling scared that no one would want me. And so I became obsessed with being normal. I never really rated me. And so what Lauren said a few weeks ago really resonated with me. To not be held back by the fear of trying to be normal. Listening to Emma Kennedy and others, I really resonated with the intense female friendships. I've had several of those over the years. This week's episode also struck a chord with me. Like Stu, I always knew I wanted children. As I hit 40, I always worry that I'll never get there. However, what Stu and Lottie said really gave me a lot of comfort. They are so right. There are lots of ways to have a family. And if we all keep an open mind, anything is possible. So anyway, that was a long ramble to tell you your podcast really means a lot to me. And it's so comforting hearing other people share their stories and remind me that we're all human. It reminds me to be a good ally and to amplify where I can and to educate others and myself. I hope you have a wonderful rest over summer. Simon well thank you Simon for getting in touch I'm so pleased that the podcast strikes those chords with you and you are as welcome as anybody else to write in and to share your thoughts with us and you're so right what Lottie and Stu said on last week's episode is so right people can become parents in all sorts of ways and so I'm delighted that gave you some comfort here's another one Dear Susie, I hope this message finds you well and the sun is shining on you today because we all know that sunshine makes everything feel better. Your podcast popped up as a suggestion on Spotify last year. Thank you, Spotify. I quickly binged episode after episode and loved every moment. The stories, the struggles, the sheer happiness and the level of acceptance and support was simply amazing. I have started and stopped this message so many times since finding your podcast, but I couldn't find the words. Now's the time though. So here goes. I have, even from a young age, known that I've been attracted to both guys and girls. I had friends at secondary school who were openly gay, and we spent lots of time in local gay pubs. At this point, I thought I was more of an ally, although as an androgynous teen, I had plenty of attention. Life circumstances, however, took me in another way. I dated guys and went from one long-term relationship to another. I went on to form a long-term relationship and got married. My marriage came to an end over six years ago, and in flooded the feelings of being lost, Was it due to loneliness, due to big changes in my life? I pushed these thoughts to the back of my mind and kept plodding along. Since then, the feeling of being lost has remained. I've thrown myself into work as a nurse, have changed jobs and looked at further education and relationships as well as hiding from them. Nothing made a difference. I turned 40 during the second lockdown and the penny finally dropped. I wasn't living authentically. Part of me was suppressed and hidden. The bi, queer half of me was being held on pause. I spoke to the boys about the fact that I might be looking for a girlfriend and not a boyfriend. They were and continue to be amazingly brilliant, saying that as long as they were kind, loving and liked football from the 11 year old, that was okay. They have been brought up knowing and accepting the full rainbow spectrum of relationships and families. They made me proud every day. And I've spoken to some of my closest friends who have been nothing but supportive and who actually weren't surprised at all. I haven't yet found the words to talk to my parents, but I've decided to wait until I find myself in a relationship. We're close and I don't anticipate any problems. I'm now striving to find my place within the LGBTQIA plus community and take even bigger steps into dating women. Finding the confidence to say to women that I'm bi, I get very mixed reactions. I'm sorry to hear that, you shouldn't. And that my experience is limited, is tricky, but worth taking. I've had a few dates and I look forward to finding someone wonderful to spend time with. I guess what I wanted to say, and I realize it's taken a bit of waffle to get to, is that we all come to a realization on what we are or who we want in our lives at different times. And it's always daunting, but keeping that part of me hidden brought me only confusion and didn't make me happy. I'm hoping to find the person who is the best fit for me, whether they're a man or a woman. Wishing you love, laughter and happiness. Vicky, feel free to use my name. Oh, Vicky, you're absolutely right. People come to different realizations about themselves all throughout their lives and, um, Thank you so much for sharing your experience. And I hope that whoever the person is that you find, you are very, very happy. And it sounds like you have got excellent children. So well done, you. Okay. And let's have one more email because it's the final episode of the series. Hi, Susie. I'm a bisexual demisexual who is married to a straight man. And usually I feel so left out by the LGBTQIA plus scene because everyone just assumes I'm straight. And if I mention I'm bisexual, it's usually dismissed as attention seeking. Thanks to listening to so many people's stories on Out, I finally feel like my sexuality and how I identify is valid. So thank you. But I mainly wanted to email to thank you for speaking so openly about dyslexia. My 13-year-old son is severely dyslexic and he really struggles to read and write and I often worry about how it will affect him as he gets older and enters into a world where he assumes everyone should be able to read and write and if they can't, they must have a lower IQ. So it's refreshing and encouraging to hear someone who is... Obviously very talented and successful Thank you very much Talk about their day-to-day struggles As part of their everyday life with dyslexia I absolutely adore the podcast And with every episode I feel more connected And enlightened by the community Much love, Sadie If this does get read read out Not that I expect it um, Feel free to use my name uh, Michael, my producer You don't need to edit me reading the word read wrong uh, I think that seeing as this is an email about dyslexia We should keep that bit in um, I, 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 I've yeah, I've really struggled with dyslexia in the past. It's something that as I've got older, I have actually, it, it is actually a lot easier for me. But oh, reading in front of people, I've always found really stressful. And it's something I now have to do as my job. But um, I hope that your son finds different ways uh, of dealing with it. Um, my tip, if you want it, is um, I use when I'm writing my shows and stuff, I use an app on my phone that um, I record my voice into, and then it transfers it into a document a typed up document and I find that so much easier than having to sit down and trying to type and spell and I make so many mistakes Um, and um, yeah I, I would say also to your son that there are so many people in creative industries that are really dyslexic lots and lots of creative people so maybe his future will be there doing something very creative maybe not up, maybe okay that's all of the uh, of the emails for today and for the emails for this series um thank you so much to you that have um that have listened whether you're listening to just one episode or whether you listen to the whole series um i really really appreciate it if you feel like tweeting about it i would love you to it is the final episode of the series so why not let people know that you've enjoyed it and then more people can find it and we can carry on making more shows uh, you can also leave a review on the itunes page instagram facebook wherever you like to shout about things you love if you love this podcast i would really appreciate shouting about it okay here is this fantastic i think in my opinion conversation with the brilliant michael cashman Oh, listener, I am so excited for today's interview with Lord Michael Cashman, an actor from boyhood starring in the West End to writing and performing plays for Alan Akebourne to the first ever gay kiss in British soap opera on EastEnders, founding Stonewall, an MEP, a member of the Civil Liberties Committee and a member of the House of Lords. I've recently finished his book, One of Them, which I highly recommend, but don't just take my word for it. Sir Ian McKellen said, This book, unlike any other I've read, is a true portrait of a brave actor, politician, and Lord, a memoir to cherish. Stephen Burkoff called it the best book I've read in years, heartbreaking. And The Guardian said, a great book about love, pain and the whole damn thing. Now really, I feel like I should start this conversation with a thank you. Because of the strength and tenacity and activism of Michael and those like him, I can live a freer, happier and more equal life today. Welcome to the show,
1: Michael. Thank you so much. That's lovely what you just said, Susie. Uh, and in terms of thanking anyone, uh, I always remind myself that we have to thank the thousands of generations before who had the courage to stand up and be counted, uh, allies as well. Uh, and, it's, and it's because of them that we're where we are now, but there's still so much to do, so much to do.
0: Absolutely. So you began your life actually not far from where you're having this conversation with me right now in the East End. And you paint such a brilliant picture. I felt like I knew sort of your mum and your auntie and your brothers and the place that you lived in and the school. Can you tell me a little bit what it was like sort of growing up in that sort of quite poor area of East London in the 50s?
1: It was, uh, I actually say, and I really believe it, that there was nowhere better to live if you were poor. It was like living in the middle of the most amazing drama that was going on. The big council estate that we lived in, um, the, I, the, the sounds, the screams, the, the arrival of the, the walls, ice cream man, the knife grinders, the the, the rent man hammering on the door and, and here nestled right on the edge of the Thames. And as you rightly say, I can look out of my window, and see where i played with my brothers jumping at high tide from barge to barge and then as soon as the tide went out getting down there on that beach but the docks then it, it was incredible it was alive there was there were tugs and ships lined along the thames and and hooting and tooting trying to get unloaded so that they could get off and and horse and carts where The stuff was kind of, it came out of the docks. Sometimes it came out in my dad's pocket. Um, (laughs) But but the the cargo came out of the docks um, and went on the backs of strong men, lorries, horses and carts. Um, It was thriving, but my God, it was poor.
0: Mm. And hard work, because your dad worked in the docks, didn't he?
1: Yes, he was a docker and he, he didn't have a permanent job. So often they would have to line up. Rows and rows of men uh, outside the docks, hoping that a man would pick them and they would Mm -hmm. get a day's work. When me and my brothers were born, he put our names down so that we could follow him into the docks. And my mum, who was a proud, proud office cleaner, came from a long line of office cleaners. If she had daughters um, at the earliest age, she would have taken them office cleaning to give them an idea of what what they would do in the future. But my mum must have known I was gay very early on because she took me office cleaning with her. <laughs> <laughs> but it was tough. But everybody else ha- had it tough. So, so you had nothing to, to really compare it to other than there were some families that weren't in debt and didn't have to hide when the rent man came round and could put the money in the gas meter. Uh, and there were others who couldn't. But what was had was shared. And that's what I remember, a, a sense of um, community, a sense of belonging to a, like a tribe, yeah. You
0: really get that from the book, that there was this sense of community, which I, unfortunately I don't feel like it exists. It doesn't exist in the flats that I live in at the moment. But it felt like, yeah, a time where everyone sort of, or at least it, where you were living at that time, everyone had a similar amount. And so everyone knew that life was
1: tough. But there still seemed to be a lot of joy. Absolutely. You know, I was born in 1950, five years after the end of the the Second World War. uh, And the country had to rebuild itself. Um, Not, I believe, in a dissimilar way to the way the country uh, and indeed the world has to rebuild itself after the, the tragedy, the utter tragedy. And in some instances, the appalling mismanagement of the COVID pandemic. So there was a a sense that the future was coming. Something exciting was coming. But as I say, you know, my my dad worked incredibly hard, and my grandparents, my my grandfather, who'd volunteered for the First World War and came back invalid, had his leg amputated three times and could never get work. But again, a community kind of... they. They supported and looked after those who needed it.
0: And what did London look like then? Because after sort of London being so bombed, were there areas where it was still sort of in ruins in places?
1: Yes. um, Here, the the East End, people may not know, but the East End, because of the docks, and the docks were seen as a lifeline to the country, Mm -hmm. um, the East End was heavily bombed. And the bomb sites were where we played. They, they were our adventure areas. But I remember when I, I, I went up into the West End, which was about an hour's bus journey away, uh, and around St Paul's there were just these holes in the ground. Um, th- there were bomb sites where they'd bombed all around St Paul's and other parts of, of the city. But again, there wasn't, Susie, a sense of looking back. There was an amazing sense of of looking forward. There was a great house-building program. I think it was the biggest house-building program. So families like mine were moving from what were called slums because they had no inside toilets, no running water, no bathrooms, were moving into these amazing newly-built two-bedroom Flats where you had running water, you had a a proper fire, you didn't have central heating. Uh, And so there was an investment into the country, an investment into uh, new industries, into building. And that gave us a sense of hope. And that's what I mean about we almost need that now. We've got to have major infrastructure programs so that we see gainful employment. We see people with money to spend that then create the other economies, what I call the luxury economies. And that's, the East End was not unlike other parts of the the country like Manchester, Birmingham, that went through terrible, terrible bombing.
0: Mm. That hopefulness is so resonant to me because my granddad was in the war. He was a civil engineer uh, from 1939 all the way through to 1945. And there was a sense of hopefulness about my nan and a sense of things will be okay. And I think that that sort of generation, because they had lost so much, but they had sort of a sense of community and they had each other and they sort of clubbed together. You know, there, there was that sense of, of, of what could be. I hope you're right. And I hope that there is that sort of, you know, you often through this pandemic, I feel like you've seen the best and the worst of people. I've got so many friends, you know, myself included, that sort of found opportunities to go and volunteer and found opportunities to go and be helpful or do something. And hopefully, you know, that won't be forgotten in six months when our lives go back to normal and we continue
1: to be community spirited. It, it mustn't be forgotten because I don't know about you, but... I've had revealed to me in my area an underclass of an underclass that I never even knew existed. Levels of loneliness, uh, of social deprivation, let alone poverty, people who felt completely isolated. And so we've got to continue. I said recently, if you see a hand that's held out for help, when you take that hand, You become strengthened. It doesn't drain you. You have a sense of belonging and a sense of connection with another human being. And I've rediscovered my community here in the East End. Um, And when you said, and I'm going to say this whether people like it or not, when you said about your, your, your nan and that sense of hopefulness, that's what makes me so angry about Brexit Mm-hmm. That, that we have disconnected from the concept of solidarity. It's like saying, no, what you're going through is nothing whatsoever to do with us. Yet in 1938 and 1939, we knew and we said, if we stand by and let this happen to you, then ultimately it will happen to us. We connected. And this idea that somehow you serve your country Isolating it and making it more vulnerable is utter utter nonsense and smacks of the, of the kind of populism the narrow populism that i find extremely dangerous end of lecture i couldn't agree more i can go on oh my mum used to say she said my my michael don't off swear nice she said but you know if if a lamppost stood lo- still long enough he'd talk to it it's a lovely idea <laughs> lamppost trying to uh, trying to get away from me <laughs> but i couldn't agree more
0: I couldn't agree more. During the pandemic, a very dear friend of mine realised that some of his neighbours were people that lived by themselves, elderly people, who would normally have lots of carers going in. And because of the pandemic, people weren't having as many carers going in. And he realised that lots of those people would now not be having a hot meal a day. So he just put a note outside of his house to say, I'm going to make a roast dinner on Sunday. If you'd like one, let me know. And it ended up being this initiative. And and a pub in the park very kindly said, well, we're not using our kitchen. You can use that and you can have all the gas and whatever for free. Use that. And my partner and I both went down and volunteered a number of times. And we're just getting food out to families. And you didn't have to prove that you were poor enough. That was one of the things, like having to go through these means testing, which feels very just upsetting and unnecessary
1: dehumanizing it's means testing is dehumanizing i I don't want to get away from this subject but when i went with my brother who is disabled i went he had to go and sit for two hours and go through these tests as to whether he was disabled enough Mm. it was dehumanizing and I don't know why as a society we do this when we can actually work things through much, much better. But but going back to your neighbour and that meal, we've been doing it around here. And there's an amazing woman called Sister Christine. Now, I don't believe in any religions. But she's been in the East End for 50 years. And this weekend, her and the volunteers... We delivered our 15,000th meal, hot meal, That's delivered twice incredible. a week. Incredible! And she has recreated a community, not through her religion, but through her beliefs, through living her values. And that is an amazing example uh, to me. And isn't it interesting, it's a woman that is leading this, uh, and women so often in the church uh, are pushed away from the front. Are taken away from the levers of power. I think there's a valuable lesson there for us to uh, to learn.
0: Yeah, not just in religion, in so many other things. Yeah, in, in life, absolutely. So let's go back to uh, where you are into the East End, because mm-hmm. um, I, I love the stories in your book of sort of from a, quite a young age you were a performer you know, dancing around in the kitchen. And that's where the lovely title of your book, I love the title, One of Them, comes from. And was it, was it your mum or your aunt that said, I think he's one of them?
1: It was my mum. I knew at the earliest age that girls were my friends and boys were the common enemy that we could fancy. And girls, you know, I, I wasn't an aggressive lad. I was I was naughty, I was always in trouble. My mum used to say, oh, Mike, please stay in. If you go out, you'll, you'll be in trouble. <laughs> but, but girls offered to me a nicer environment in which I could um, be myself. I think I became a performer to stop people seeing the real me. I mm-hmm. could make them laugh. I could distract mm-hmm. them. And I remember my mum saying, dance for your Auntie Eileen. And my Auntie Eileen was, was my favorite aunt because she had this magical trick of one minute she had teeth in her mouth and the next minute she had no teeth. Because during, <laughs> during those, can you believe this, during the 50s, there was a fashion that working class people were encouraged to have their teeth out so that they could have a full set. Anyway, so my mum said, go and dance, dance for your Auntie Eileen. And I threw myself around, she put a record on, threw myself, the legs were going everywhere and they were laughing and clapping. And I heard my mum say, I think he's one of them. And I didn't know what one of them meant. But suddenly inside I thought, they know. They know I'm different, they know, they know, and they're laughing and they mustn't laugh, they mustn't laugh. And there was this internal voice going on. And then when I stopped dancing, they kissed me and hugged me and clapped and and I thought, they'll forget, it's okay. And, and I think that was one of those moments when I knew that yes, I was different, but I had to hide it. That if people knew you were like that, they would hurt you or they would cast you away. And so uh, so I, I learned to disguise myself. Yeah, that, that was a very interesting, very paralysing moment in my young life. And
0: how old would you have been then? About seven or eight. What was it like writing that all down? Had you always sort of been aware of, you know, that memory or had you sort of buried that?
1: No, I'd, I'd always been aware of th- that memory, because interestingly, my Aunt Eileen, the one I danced in front of, um, my dad was the first person I physically came out to, physically said the words to, but my mum and my Aunt Eileen were the second and third. I think I'd registered it, I'd held that memory, and I didn't hold it as a bad memory to them, but as a memory that, that told me I had to protect myself. To call someone one of them in the East End, and they still do it. They still do it now to a certain extent. and They go, "Yeah, he's one of them," and that means you're queer. And then later on, I, I learned the word queer, but it was the way the men, normally the men, said it. It was, it, it was kind of it, it, there was something bad, the mm. tone. Interestingly, when you said the word queer to identify, self-identify. You gave it a completely different tone. I remember I would say to someone, "Are you queer?" But but if they said it, they go, "He's queer." It's a, a hardness to it.
0: And how do you feel about the word queer now? Because there's been such a reclaiming of it.
1: As David Hockney would say, it has many colours. Love. <laughs> I'm all in favour of owning language. Turning something around. I'm a great believer in turn a a negative into a positive. And I I think we should choose our labels or no labels. Again, it's how you use the word. Funnily enough, if if you weren't well, they say, oh, have a lie down. Are you feeling a bit queer? So it was always that you weren't feeling normal. Mm -hmm. But I have no problem with uh, the reclamation of language, especially language that's been used against you in a negative way Mm. turn it around turn it back
0: and ownership isn't it
1: ownership absolutely right yep
0: and so it it was when you were a teenager or or maybe just before you were a teenager that you were in the west end Mm. and you were in oliver
1: yes i was 12 what
0: was that like for your I mean, it must have been very exciting for you. I mean, I grew up, I mean, I absolutely love musical theatre. I grew up singing and dancing. There was a very distinct moment when I was about 14, when I was playing football a bit as well, and I had to decide whether I was going to go and try out for Pompey Ladies. That's where I grew up in Portsmouth. But that clashed with my tap class, and I really had to decide what kind of lesbian I was going to be, and it's a showbiz one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I probably had to make the same decision, but subconsciously because when I failed my 11 plus and went to the secondary modern school, where I felt like I was in a war zone, and I didn't belong, they would throw me onto the football pitch. And I knew that if I kicked the ball into my own goal, they'd send me off. And that's what I used to do. But actually, what I always forgot to factor in was that they beat me up as well. So I decided that I was going to, I wanted actually from an early age to go into show business this isn't in the book but i remember going with some mates getting what they call a bus rover a red rover and we were going around the west end and we passed one of the television buildings i think we passed the bbc and i went in and said to the receptionist can i have an audition (laughs) And she was very lovely and gave me a little piece of paper saying, oh, you have to write in. And then I think I did it at uh, Rediffusion, which was a big television channel on the corner of Holborn and walked in through the front door. But that going into that other world, that is when I felt I belonged. In that secondary modern school, that talent scout being there, me coming on, impersonating Eartha Kitt, my mum standing up shouting out, here, 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 he's got my dress on. <laughs> and, and, and it was an amazing stroke of luck. And when, when the, the guy convinced my mum and dad that I should audition, I remember my dad saying, oh, I don't want him going to, in show business, it's full of queers. And I thought, "Oh, I want to be there. Yeah, great, get me there. And, and Susie, that bus journey to the West End I used to get on that bus on the top deck, filled with smoke and people smoking and pipes. And and I would see the lights of the West End, the East End of the Strand, coming toward me. And I'd jump off that bus and I'd run up to the theatre and stand outside. And it would say, Oliver, in its fourth year. And I'd walk into the stage door, into a world that before was alien, but a world where I absolutely belonged. It was incredible. And the fact that, you know, I'd experienced quite, as you know from the book, some earlier bits of darkness that had happened to me. Um, Surprisingly, I knew no fear. And maybe that, the fact that I knew no fear, uh, was again the reason I, I fell into the hands of some men who abused me. But by that time, I'd, I'd, I'd worked out how to survive being in show business. That's what you called it. I'm in show business now. That was that was when I first felt I belonged. I could be me. I could fancy other boys, and I wouldn't get beaten up. That it would be okay. That would be the phrase that w- would hang in the air. It's okay.
0: You say about this sort of darkness, and there are sort of darker moments, certainly in your early years, and, and you mentioned the, the the abuse, but I think the thing that really sings out in the book, and just from talking to you for, for a little while, is the positivity that comes out of the book, the, the hopefulness, as we were saying before, because I feel like often when people have experienced such sadness and such abuse and upset and people taking advantage of you, it would be so easy to think, Fuck the world. Yes. But instead, it feels like what you've done was go, well, they're awful, but I'm still going to love the world. I'm still going to go towards the world with joy. Thank you. And I think that's the thing that really sings out in the book. And so after Oliver, I mean, first of all, were your parents like, I mean, you must have been making a living, going and doing the show every night, was it quite sort of thrilling for them to be, I don't know, I guess less worried about money coming in, about your dad queuing for work, for a day's work here and there? It must have been a relief in a way.
1: I was earning a third more a week than my dad. And, and so there was a rule that you had to save a third of your money every week. And, and when you went up to be relicensed, Bit like a performing dog, so that you could still work on stage. Your your mother would have to bring your bank deposit book, and I remember the uh, the man this terrible man mr langley always miserable my mom said she said he always reminded her of a man who'd lost a pound and found a penny and um, (laughs) and he used to look at the book and go no no mrs cashman it's no use every time you leave here and he gets his license drawing all his money out it's got to stay in the bank book yes money came into the family um i know i also cost them money when when It was decided that for various reasons uh, that I should go to a a stage school. And um, a lot of the payment to all the fees came from my professional work, from Mm. the the tellies and the films and the commercials that I did. But they also made sacrifices and I never once heard them complain.
0: I mean, I'm jumping forward a little bit, but when you did the the gay kiss in EastEnders, they were supportive which i think is i mean it wasn't a surprise to me but i feel like so often the stories that were told about people of that generation certainly with regards to their lgbt queer however you identify yourself children
1: would have been a lot harsher well yes that's right but i think a couple of other things fall into play here which is that dogs experience a different view of the world because different nationalities, different languages are coming in through the dock gates every single day. My mum and dad used to go to a pub called Charlie Brown's just to, up the road on the corner of the original uh, Chinatown. And Charlie Brown's was a, a, a pub where drag queens used to hang out. My mum and dad used to call the old ship queens, you know, the, the, the camp sailors who, uh, and so. And so I think docs had a much more interesting social mosaic where you could be outrageous and you were allowed to fit in so long as you followed certain rules. Uh, and one of the rules was that you had to fit in and you had to make people laugh. You couldn't take yourself seriously. And when I came out to my dad, my, my brother was in uh, having a. Um, a major brain operation he was a hit and run victim on a pedestrian crossing and during the the intensity of this room the, they call it a relative's room in, in the hospital uh, i suddenly turned to my father and i said if you're attacking danny for his relationship uh, then you're attacking me because i'm exactly the same and he, he just looked at me and he said i don't want to know And he stormed out of the room and I went to go after him. And my Aunt Eileen grabbed me and she said, leave him, leave him. He's old-fashioned. I told my mum and my mum said, I always knew. And then she came up to me and told me she had a boyfriend. Um, I'd worked that out years ago. But the fascinating thing, there's there's a moment in the book where I recount about a documentary that I did. And they, my mum and dad phoned me that night. It was a documentary about discrimination faced by uh, LGBT people and where it came from. It was for, the, for BBC. And they phoned me that night after the broadcast, as they always did, and said, oh, love you, love you, proud of you, proud of you. Um, and then the next morning, Paul, my, my beautiful, wonderful uh, late husband, he answered the phone and he said, it's your dad. And he, he was strange and he said, I've just been to my pub he said, and the governor's put, could give me a pint, a free pint because of your program. He said, no, I, I just want to tell you I'm proud of you. And I said, yeah, yeah, Dad, you, you told me that last night because my dad and I had a really difficult relationship. And he went, no, no, I, I'm proud of you, I'm proud of you. And then there was a long, long pause and he went, and I love you. And I think, Susie, that was the first time I'd heard my dad say that and I think it was the moment when he realized that if he'd been gay and he'd had the same opportunities he would have done exactly the same and I I look back and I think that that was the day I became my father's son and interestingly you know how did I get to know him this man that for a certain part of my life I loathed I got to know him because of my love for Paul. I gave my dad the, the son-in-law he never thought he'd have. Four sons, you don't expect to have a, a son-in-law. And and it was Paul uh, that had this brilliant relationship around sport and football and drinking and all of that that got me to see the man that his friends would have seen. And that at times, those quiet, silent moments when he and my mum together were together, that she would have seen, but that he as a man would never show to his sons. Um, And so in in that respect, I think his generation suffered a lot because of their emotional disconnection that they had to engage. It sounds a strange phrase, but to engage with their emotional disconnection. Um, Mm. But also he loved getting up in drag. He would often disappear at a wedding and come back just like my nan. I have such... Fond memories because that kiss in EastEnders, making noise about what politicians should be doing, activism. They never once said to me, think of your brothers, think of your nephews and nieces, think of us. Never once. Um, They gave me the luxury to be loudmouthed and they gave me the luxury to fail. You mentioned Paul. I I think that so much of the book is sort of a a beautiful
0: love story. You met him when he was a redcoat in Scarborough and it felt like, I don't know, just from reading, you know, you feel like you get to know him a little bit through the book.
1: Good, good.
0: (laughs) And you really get to see that the first, like I know you were a little bit older than him, but that sort of first love, the excitement, the sort of will they, won't they at the beginning bit when he bugs off for three days and you don't know where he's gone and is it all over. Did you know that that sort of love as a gay man was
1: possible to have that sort of long-term relationship? I knew it was possible, but, but not possible for me because, you know, before I met Paul, I'd had nine years with... Uh, a man I met when I was 16, and he was 24. Um, and we lived through the years of criminality when there was no age of consent, let alone a, uh, an age of consent that came in later at 21. And I and I had a, an interesting relationship with Lee. It, was, it helped me develop enormously. but But I believe that if you loved me, you had to leave me. You had to hurt me. And that love affairs, for me would go wrong. And had to be painful. Yes. Maybe that was a lot to do with those early experiences where, you know, I, I suffered that that abuse and lived lived through it. But I think for the first two years with Paul, I pushed him away because it, it seemed too good. I knew he would hurt me and I knew he would leave me. There were 13 years between us. In fact, it was Barbara Windsor who in, introduced us through her, her end-of-season party. And at one point, I think Paul and I had been together about 20 years. She went, she said, what is it about you two?" I said, what, what do you mean? She went, well, she said, 20 years? She said, I've had two husbands in that time. <laughs> and he, he gave up so much and came to London and he started again. And then we very nearly split up and without giving too much away we decided that that we couldn't be without one another and I knew I had to work at this relationship I could no longer push him away I could no longer wish it dead because then the prophecy would have been fulfilled he taught me to emotionally realize that I deserved better Um, and in the end he taught me to be loved it was an open relationship we had to work at it and and living through that period of aids and hiv and the darkness we clung to one another and we got through it whereas so many people didn't
0: mm. and what was that like i mean obviously i've i've read things and i've watched TV series and films about your Michael is currently wearing a L.A. t-shirt, and I told him that I've also got one that's pressed and in my wardrobe, ready to wear. From uh, it's a sin, (laughs) Um, but I'd love to know sort of what it felt like to be a a gay man at that point. You know, how was it for you, sort of day to day? Were you losing friends? Because it feels like to me, just from reading and watching stuff, it would feel like, you know the Grim Reaper was always in the room just because they are this fear.
1: In the early years, we denied the existence of the gay reaper. Uh, And Susie, that was because the early 80s, Britain was a very dark place if you didn't conform. And living through those those years where the tabloid depiction of, of lesbians and gay men and bisexuals was vile absolutely vile so the reason we denied the grim reapers existence was because we took refuge in our in our gay bars in our clubs places that operated often a room above a pub he, there was a guy called tricky dicky and he used to do these single night discos across london and you virtually it was it was like a, a little trail of nomads we followed him into rooms and bars where we could be ourselves. And as I say in the book, dance our tits off and not give a fuck about what was happening, but knowing that as soon as you went out onto that pavement, the real world was there and was a challenge. And so when you saw your friends um, suddenly gaunt, or you heard that they were in hospital, or they disappeared from the scene, you could you could deny it no longer. Uh, and, of course, Paul and I had an open relationship by that time, and, and then you just had to say, absolutely not. All the rules have got to be rewritten. It's about protection. You have to protect yourself. I went into EastEnders around about its peak, and so I saw it from uh, two sides of the mirror where I was always associated with AIDS and HIV in reporting. They outed Paul. The News of the World outed Paul on the center pages saying, secret gay love of AIDS scare East Ender. The AIDS scare was in the program. East Ender, rather than East Enders, was because I lived in the East End. Paul was my secret love. They put the location of our home, and that Sunday afternoon, courtesy of the News of the World, a brick came through the window, and it, it, it wouldn't be the last. And that's why a lot of people kept so firmly in the closet, because to come out as a gay man or a bisexual um, was was to be synonymous with AIDS and HIV. And again, people may not remember or even know, but it, it was represented in the media as the gay plague and people were told you could catch it by sitting next to a gay man or using uh, a cup or a glass that they used that hadn't been uh, properly uh, properly washed. So so it was a much darker, darker world. And, and, and I, so I decided to get involved, to support the newly formed charities and the hospices and the brilliant work that was being done. And then one day... Uh, I used to go off and do these um and they'd be a bit like call the midwife, uh, and and they'd they'd say to people in uh, a hospice or at the Kensington and Chelsea, which was another of the uh, specialist uh, AIDS hospitals. Uh, they'd say we've got a celebrity coming around. Um, would you like a, a visit? Um, and people generally said yes. And. So I used to knock on the door, open the door and go in. And they go, oh, look, it's Colin from EastEnders, you know, my character. And I knocked on, doing my little rounds, and I knocked on this door and went in. And there was a friend of mine in the bed, Ashley. He hadn't told anyone that he was HIV positive. He made me promise not to tell anyone. And about six weeks later, he went home Uh, and died at home with his parental family The, the fact that someone couldn't reveal their status gives you an indication of how people were misrepresented and stigmatized and defamed and what makes me angry now is that some people who were around and who experienced that and saw that happening are now defaming and stigmatizing and misrepresenting the trans community, trans women, trans men, trans teenagers who want to harm no one but merely become their true selves. And we always have to connect with what's happened in the past and make sure it doesn't happen again in the future to anyone because it could so easily happen. We're not living in a very nice time in in the United Kingdom with refugees and asylum seekers being represented as a threat, people who don't believe in Brexit being represented as traitors, that if you support trans people, somehow uh, you're attacking the rights of women. There is a a narrative going on in this country of pitting one against the other. And I have to imagine, what if I were that mother with my children looking at war behind me or able to step into a leaky boat in the Mediterranean? What would I choose? I would choose that boat. I would get to a safe country. And the fact that we in other parts of Europe say you are not welcome it's a shame that we should live with for generations.
0: <sighs> no, I totally agree. It's heartbreaking.
1: And I, again, going back to the work that's done here in Poplar, Sister Christine, uh, and I always have to say, you know, I'm a born-again atheist, uh, but this nun, uh, amazing woman, goes on trips, and I've been with her, uh, to Calais, because she, she has the imagination to stand in the shoes of the other. And that's what we should all have. It's what we should demand of our politicians. Before you do that or enact that law, imagine it is you. And if you wouldn't want it to happen to you or someone you love, then how dare you allow it to happen to somebody else? Humanity is connected by not only the good that we do, but the evil that lives on and the evil that is often done, sometimes unintentionally. When Margaret Thatcher brought in that terrible anti-lesbian and gay law, first anti-LGB law in 100 years, it was called Section 28, and it helped to lead to the formation of Stonewall and it, and it and, and the battle for equality. Of course, eventually, we got rid of that law in this country, but that law is now being acted out in places like Hungary, in the Soviet Union. The legacy of it and other British laws are still being enforced in in parts of the Commonwealth, where we should have the courage. I said to, when I was in the European Parliament, I said to uh, uh, one of the Ugandan politicians, she she said to me, she said, but it's your country that brought these laws to us. And I said, yes. I said, so I want to come and apologise and take those laws away
0: yeah and so do you think there was always this because you know the the founding of stonewall and everything that happened with regards to section 28 and sort of the i guess the beginning of that activism to get rid of section 28 was there always an activist within you or was that the thing that sort of ignited that fire in your belly
1: it was that that ignited the fire in my my belly when people were dying with aids related illnesses when people were being hounded from their homes because people thought they were HIV positive, when women were having their children taken away from them because they were going into lesbian relationships. Then they brought in Section 28. At a time when you should have supported this community, they attempted to destroy it. And I just just thought, I don't believe this. I do not believe that this is going to happen. And there was a march, and I knew I had to be on that march. I didn't even tell Paul, because I didn't want to tell anyone who might try, I'm not saying who would, but might might try and talk me out of it for my own personal safety or whatever. And I went on that march, and we joined the campaign against Section 28. Uh, and that was the beginning of my activism. Interestingly... Somebody prophesied this in the mid 70s when they did my astrological natal chart. Someone I'd never met did the astrological natal chart, sent me the tape, I've still got it to this day. And in it, he prophesies and he says, lovely voice, there's a clock ticking in the background. Oh yes, it's, it's very interesting, Michael. This, this yes, it's very interesting. This with this planet and this this uh, sextile, um, it indicates to me if some kind of brotherhood. Like if you'll you'll be a, a leader of a, a gay fellowship, <laughs> and uh, I, I was out to myself in the mid seventies. I was just about to come out to my mum and dad, but leading a gay fellowship. I, I remember going. Absolutely not. But Section 28 was the straw that broke so many of our backs. And we thought, you want to fight? We'll give you a bloody fight. And the interesting thing is Section 28, of course, became law. And I think if we'd stopped it becoming law, we might not have continued with the battle for equality. We might have thought, yeah, haven't we done well? They would have bought us off. But no, it's another reason that when, when it seems dark, that's when you imagine the light. That's when you turn it around. That's when you apply yourself. Somebody said to me recently, oh, with all the, the trans issues going on, Stonewall's having a really difficult time. I said, yes, Stonewall has always had mm-hmm. a difficult time, because it's a campaigning organisation. It's campaigning for changes. Constantly. And for changes that some powerful people do not want to give you. So, yeah, Section 28, in a strange way, Margaret Thatcher galvanised us in, 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 into action. And I nearly, I was going to call my book at one point, instead of one of them, I was thinking of calling it The Accidental Activist. <laughs>
0: And then in brackets, thanks to Margaret.
1: Cheers, Maggie.
0: Yeah, I loved reading about that in your book and the, you know, being on those marches. And was it, I don't know if I read this in the book or, or listened to it in an interview that you did. You were at EastEnders when you went on that march. Yes. And you had to tell them, and you told June Brown.
1: I saw that I was down to work on the Saturday. And I went to see the person organising the schedule and said, "Look, I need, you know, to be finished early Saturday because I, 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 I got I need to be in London for lunchtime because we used to work. Well, they still do. They record it out at Elstree mm-hmm. in in Boreham Wood. And uh, anyway, Friday I looked at the schedule and no, I was down to work through lunchtime. So I went to see June Brown who played played Dot. I said, June, I need tomorrow off. Is so there any way we can shift our scenes earlier in the day? Oh, why, Mike, dear? Why? Why did you? Need, <laughs> why did you get the time off, dear? I said, June. There's a. I said, there's a gay march. Oh dear, that's nice, dear. Gay march. I said, yeah, it's, it's against this Section 28. She knew because I got the, most of the cast to sign uh, a, a letter uh, condemning Section mm-hmm. 28. So June went in and got me time off and it allowed me to jump on the train, go on the march, which then erupted in a riot outside 10 Downing Street, jump back on the train to be faced by hordes of football supporters on the train who spotted me and they went, calling, calling, I got off the train, got back, and June went, Oh, you didn't get arrested then, dear.
0: (laughs) I was about to say, Didn't she say to you, Just don't get arrested. Don't get arrested. arrested."
1: (laughs) And that was the interesting thing. You know, June and I came from different parts of the political spectrum, but we understood one another, and she supported what I was trying to do. She used to say to me on election day, because June was a one-nation Tory, and I was out there campaigning for the Labour Party, and she used to say, oh, Mag, dear, have you been out to vote? And I said, yes, June. She said, well, I've been out to cancel you out, dear. (laughs) I said, June, it doesn't work like that. You and I know?
0: Isn't that a thing that I just feel like happens less and less now that sort of like cross-party communication where you can have discourse and you can you know you don't have to see someone that's not the same as you as the enemy
1: yeah
0: I I had I don't know if you know Sean Fay but she was on the podcast recently and we were talking about the fact that you know there's such a lack of conversation
1: but not in the House of Lords yes I was hoping we'd go on to this the House of Lords has become a bit more extreme under Brexit, uh, and because of uh, Boris Johnson. And interestingly, the European Parliament is the same because in the House of Lords and in the European Parliament, no one party, no one single party has a majority. So you've got to work across the political spectrum. Uh, I did uh, the first, what became the EU-wide Freedom of Information uh, Act when I was in the European Parliament in my first year there and and i managed to get the christian democrats on board the european liberals the greens didn't come on board sadly because it, they, they felt it didn't go far enough but actually it was groundbreaking but but i built through working with my opposite numbers a substantial majority so that when the uh then it was 15 countries when the 15 countries sat down and negotiated with us they knew I had a substantial majority. Now, in the House of Lords, it's exactly the same, that you build your majority, and often you you have to build it through argument, uh, through reaching compromise amendments. And I've been doing quite a lot of work with Lord Lexton, and Lord Lexton is a senior conservative backbencher. And so when he and I stand up and we're working in the chamber together, we've, we've managed to get into the Armed Forces Bill, Uh, some work that we did two years ago, widening the pardons and the the posthumous pardons uh, and the disregards. And then we we did some other work in 2017 and we're hoping to see that uh, widen the the pardons and the disregards uh, for people who are are alive. Um, But it just shows that you can achieve change by working with people and having a dialogue and recognizing that through compromise, you can never compromise on, on principle, but you can compromise on how you achieve it. And that for me is the important issue, recognizing that each has to gain something and give something. And when I was negotiating over the Schengen border code that I wrote in, into law, I sat down with the negotiators for the, all of the countries and said, this is what I can give up, if you give me something, this is what I cannot give up, and this is in the middle. And we got through those negotiations by, by each recognising uh, the areas where we could negotiate and the areas where we couldn't. And Britain seems to have lost that. Britain seems to think that when you negotiate with the European Union, you have to thump the European Union to the floor, metaphorically rip its guts out, uh, and then ask them to be your friend.
0: I mean, I'm just constantly agreeing with you, but that's what's happening. Um, So the the final question that I want to ask you, and it's what I ask absolutely everybody that comes on the show, uh, because we have lots of listeners that are all different ages and in all different places, but we get lots of young listeners as well who are maybe working out their sexuality. We also have lots of parents that listen whose children have recently come out. If you could reach out to that sort of 12-year-old version of you on that bus going to the Bright Lights of the West End every night and give him a bit of advice or you can think of it as someone that's listening that you know aligns somewhat with your story and give them a bit of advice about what's to come or give them a bit of hope what would you say
1: it's something I learned shortly after Paul died I ask you to just look in the mirror and see the person that other people see those people who love you see the person that they see know that you can be loved and know above all else that you can become yourself. That's perfect. Thank you, Michael. Oh, thank you. I know, you know, cause uh, I told you I can, I can talk until kingdom come, but I love It's an atheist allowed to say until kingdom come.
0: <laughs> I think you are. I'll check.
1: <laughs> I, I once said a, a friend of mine, Olivet Cole Wilson, one of the founders of Stonewall, um, uh, she spent years saying oh michael don't say oh jesus just say oh my lord and so anyway she trained me and so I got to that the trouble is at work at the house of lords and I go oh my lord and at least two people turn around and say did you call <laughs> did you, call? <laughs> did you... <laughs>
0: Oh, I loved that conversation. I really did. I thought that was a really special one. What a brilliant guy. I highly recommend his book. Well, that's it. That's the end of this series. I will speak to you all in September. I hope that you all have a great summer. And thank you so much for being my company on this very, very strange year. What, 15 months now? Um, And if I've been your company, it is a real privilege. Uh, I hope you look after yourselves and I will speak to you in September. Bye bye.